How do the complexities of child development help us understand what is happening to ourselves and to our culture? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss the vital role child-rearing plays in individual human life and more broadly in our society. Those are the two themes we often come back to, individual psychology and social psychology. What is important to know about ourselves and what is equally important to understand about our culture at large. My focus is often on the individual. Self-knowledge is key to a happy life. I completely agree. And as a cultural critic, my focus has usually been on what I call our toxic culture. But the mental health of individuals is a synergetic issue that has to be considered when we think about our culture. Okay, we're going to play for you another interview we conducted with Dr. Jerry Piven. Dr. Piven teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Three of his most notable books are Slaughtering Death on the Psychoanalysis of Terror, Religion, and Violence, The Psychology of Death in Fantasy and History, and Death and Delusion, a Freudian Analysis of Mortal Terror. He has published over 50 papers in the past decade, and he is currently working on a book to be titled Pious Massacre, Literary Violence from Dostoevsky to Mishima, and an edited collection called Death, Religion, and Evil. Here's the interview with Dr. Piven. Dr. Piven, welcome to Perspective. Thank you. Jerry, the heart of Becker's theories deals with the psychological results of our repression of our fear of death. How early does this repression and fear of death start in a person's life? Well, some people might say that it begins with the trauma of birth, and some would say that children don't even know what death is uh, until they're several years old, and even if they do have some abstract sense of what it is because their parents might have told them, they don't fully understand what death is. In fact, young children may know that things die. They might have seen a relative die, or they may have a, lost a pet or something to this effect, but they stay, uh, may have the fantasy that the, the pet may come back to life, that the cat will come back, or even that the father will come back or something to this effect. So the typical response is that the fear of death develops in stages, and at a certain point there's a far more concrete way of understanding death, the ability to understand things not only abstractly, but to fully really recognize that death is the cessation of life, that there is no such thing as the return of a dead creature, and that things will rot and molder in the grave, and that worms will be uh, consuming their brains, and this is a horrifying thought. Now, this being said, we could interpret death in a slightly different way. If we're going to be Beckerian about this, Becker is going to tell us that the fear of death is inculcated in infancy, and not just through instruction, but from the fact that children feel extremely vulnerable and helpless early in life. Now, this does not mean that the fear of death for children of one or two or three years old must be a philosophical conception, or that the child must really even understand it concretely. What it means is that the child is so frail and vulnerable that it can be terrified with being killed, terrified with annihilation, very early in life, even if it doesn't understand death as in such a complicated way that an adult might. So, here it is for Becker. We're born into this world very 
incomplete. In fact, some anthropologists might coin the term neoteny. We're born prematurely. We're born uh, incomplete. We're not fully formed. In fact, if we were born fully developed, then we would kill our mothers because our brains are too big and our shoulders would, would rip her apart. So we're born in an extremely vulnerable, incomplete state. And we have this complex neural net for a brain, which is subject both to incredible programming, because we have these cerebrums, but also, therefore, susceptible to any number of injurious influences. We're that vulnerable, physically and emotionally. So that the child comes into this world in such a state of helplessness that from an evolutionary perspective, from a biological perspective, it needs the caretaking, not just physiological caretaking, but the attention, the love, the nurturance of parents in order to develop psychologically as well. Darwin talked about this in some of his work. Yeah, Darwin talks about it, but it is more uh, recently that anthropologists and psychologists are talking about neoteny or being born prematurely in a state of uh, being incomplete. And again, for most psychologists, the fear of death, especially psychoanalysts, the fear of death is never an issue. And so it isn't even discussed among them in terms of, of the fear of death in childhood, right? Because again, they can't really understand it in a complex way. So Becker's perspective on this is unusual, because he's talking not just about the fear of death as adults have it, but annihilation anxieties. Now, these annihilation anxieties can be the product of parents who might scare their children or beat their children, convince the child that the child's life is threatened, right? Children can do all sorts of things to terrify a child. But Becker's point is fascinating here, because he's drawing on Norman Brown's idea of the Oedipal Project. And the Oedipal Project is not about, in a Freudian sense, the desire to possess or uh, have sex with the mother and kill the father. The Oedipal Project is about the child trying to be a master of its own fate. That the child is in this incredible state of helplessness and vulnerability, and this is, is extremely frustrating and terrifying for the child. So the child is going to try to overcome this sense of vulnerability, not only by controlling its environment, not only in trying to control its body, its sphincters, the environment around it, but the person, the child, developing child, will fantasize or hallucinate a sense of narcissistic inflation in Norman Brown's terms. In other words, children will learn to lie to themselves about how important they are in the universe, who they control what is at stake in their lives, in their power, they will, according to this view, fantasize themselves into a state of invulnerability or more power, more significance, more importance than they would in reality have. So let me, let me lay it out for you just a little bit. Okay, sure. When we're born, we, again, are in this state of frailty and helplessness. We experience what may be called separation anxieties. Right? This is what the analysts are going to call it separation individuation difficulties. On the one hand, we're terrified if mother walks out of the room, at least early enough in life. We're terrified of being abandoned. Some might say, uh, some analysts might say, we're even afraid of disintegrating or leaking or falling into nothingness. And our mothers are there to protect us, and we're terrified without her. So in this sense, separation is an experience of potential annihilation and death. We're terrified of separating because this is a real threat to the core of our, of our being. And what we have to do as children is sort of navigate the separation in such a way that it feels healthy and safe to go on our own. So we will gradually migrate in a circumference away from the parent and hopefully feel safe in doing so. On the other hand, even though we, under optimal conditions, will internalize 
uh, enough love and nurturance to feel that separating is safe, we also have this sense that merger with the mother is also potentially annihilating. And this is a fascinating paradox. If separation can be death, merger with the mother can also be death because children want to be independent, at least to some degree. And at a certain point, the mother can become a potentially smothering creature, that to depend on the mother is evidence that the child is helpless and frail. This could be a real blow to a kid's developing self-esteem, right? The mother can be a symptom of the child's uh, helplessness, and the child might need to get away from the caregiver. It doesn't have to be the mother, especially now in the 21st century, so that children may come to both fear separation from the mother and merger with the mother. Now, of course, this has incredible significance for the way love relations develop, because many people develop a terror of intimacy on the basis of feeling that intimacy makes one vulnerable and can destroy the person. There's an annihilation anxiety in some people in regard to intimacy. So these are the kinds of issues, separation, individuation, and merger kinds of conflicts that both potentially presage annihilation. However, this being said, there are two other issues. One, that this is something that happens to every child, not just some kids, to varying degrees. Secondly, there is also the added phenomenon that parents will potentially threaten some kids. They will sometimes hit them. They will threaten them with punishment or loss of love. And this can also be terrifying and inculcate in the child the anxiety, the death, uh, annihilation of some kind, not just physically, but emotionally, can occur if they behave the wrong way. But further, and this is what Becker really gets into, despite all of these particular issues, the separation and individuation issues, and the inculcation of various kinds of prohibitions, the fact is that human beings are all going to be, to some degree, terrified of death. And therefore, it's not only the kids who have had an aberrant childhood who are going to be afraid of death, but all of us, in some deg- to some degree, are going to go through life with this remnant of childhood helplessness staying with us. Right? So these kinds of things are going to happen to a child, even with the most ideal parents, aren't they? Right. Well, that's why uh, Becker says that biological frailty and helplessness are something we carry with us throughout our lives, and that it is true that parenting makes a huge difference, and that there are kids who will be abused or who will internalize all sorts of toxic influences from their parents or environment or wherever. Uh, And this will make a dramatic influence in terms of how courageously the kid goes through life, how afraid the kid is of independent thought or independent action, etc., etc. But on the other hand, the fact is, since we are all biologically and psychologically frail, even kids that are optimally nurtured and nourished emotionally will still carry with them this sense of frailty, this helplessness to some degree, and that the fear of death is therefore not something that only some aberrant kids carry with them. This is part of what it means to be human. Now, the reason that this is so important, especially when it comes to Becker, is that so many people who talk about the fear of death talk about it only in terms of the existential anxiety in adulthood. That is to say that there's some kind of avoidance of what happens until we get to be adults. There's some sense that we have this existential anxiety that occurs with the inception of consciousness, and that until then, there was no anxiety. It only dawned on us at a certain age that we would die and molder in the grave, and that's when we, uh, as conscious beings, developed this fear of death. But what Becker's doing is making it far more sophisticated than that by talking about the developmental vicissitudes, and furthermore, how it's rooted in our biology and our very vulnerable psychology. And in fact, one might say that the adult conception of death, the existential anxiety itself, would not exist without this childhood development, without this frailty, as it were, and furthermore, that the character 
of this existential death anxiety is specifically determined by all the kinds of experiences that we go through, which really vary from individual to individual. And this is why we don't all think of death as the same way. Yes, as adults, we may know that death means the cessation of life and that we may have associations of being in the grave and so forth. But when you ask people to think, what do you associate with death? They think of different things, right? The Greeks associated death with sleep, among other things, right? Twin brother, etc. Some people think of, of pain when they think of death. Other people think of violence and murder when they think of death. Other people see it as, as, as something that is peaceful, and they may look forward to it in some it sense. It varies from culture to culture, really. It varies from culture to culture, but one might say that it's not just that the culture tends to provide for us various kinds of uh, fantasies and religious views and images, but one might say that the culture itself is developed out of different kinds of fantasies that represent the disposition of the people who create that culture. It's not only acting from without, but that it's created from these various kinds of differentiating conditions which establish different imagery in regard to death. Now, individuals, again, will go through various kinds of experiences which will make the concept of death or the imagery of death or the feelings about it very different. In my experience, mm -hmm. my being a parent, I found kids aware of death at about two, two and a half asking questions about death. And I think a lot in our culture, a lot of parents push that off. They say, oh, you don't need to know about that. You don't need to talk about that. We don't need to bring that up for little Johnny or little Susie. But yet the, it's in the kid's head anyway. They want to protect them. They want to shield them as if you know, they can keep it from them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, children who don't learn about death are only representing the denial of their parents. But of course, Children can be instructed in a certain way about death. My, my nephew was told about the cycle of life as though it were all about the Lion King and this sort of thing, and, and that this is considered a more benign way of telling a child that he's going to die as opposed to look at that rotting squirrel in the yard teeming with maggots. That's going to be you someday, right? Or the uh, tomb of the Capuchin monks uh, in Rome that is a mausoleum full of sculptures and, and chandeliers made of the bones of these monks, and they're displaying the corpses and saying, what you are now, we once were. What we are now, you will one day be. This is much more horrifying. So yes, there are different ways of. That's, that's of, the heart of Catholicism. <laughs> yes, I mean, right. You get that. You get that from day one in Catholic school. You're going to be dust someday. You're going to be dead someday. And watch out, or you'll wind up in hell. Well, oh, right. But, there are innumerable ways of teaching children about death. And even though kids will understand it differently, not only depending on what they're told, but depending on what age they are and how capable they are of conceptualizing death. One might say that it's not only what they're told, but sometimes uh, what, what they're not told. You said that some parents won't tell their kids about death. Well, not only does the kid not understand something because there's an absence of knowledge, but there's a way of internalizing that avoidance because that avoidance represents the uh, psychological complexes and issues of the parent themselves. And even though the parent may say nothing, children will represent the unconscious of their parents. And what I mean by this, because it sounds really bizarre to say that, is that there are nonverbal ways of communicating things to kids, right? There are nonverbal ways of scaring the hell out of a child by looking concerned or by being avoidant or not talking about something. The body language can express something. A parent who's extremely taciturn about something and doesn't discuss at all can still uh, influence the child to be terrified of something. There is something to avoid here. There's some issue which is being avoided. The parent, through silence, may give the child some feeling, oh, this parent, my parent is angry. Uh, the consequence of talking about this is going to be violence. This subject must be avoided or else my parent will kill me or not love me and things like this. 
So children can internalize a tremendous amount of information that can even be traumatic uh, on the child without anybody having said a word about it. We've gone through this progression, this development. When do we get into, you know, in our development, needing assurance of meaning and significance in our lives? When does that enter the picture? Well, I think any time a child feels anxiety, fear, terror, it needs reassurance. This is, uh, again, fundamentally part of uh, being a helpless, frail uh, creature early in life. At a certain level, it's purely physiological. Uh, that is to say, it's about the physio- physical nurturing. Children need the physical contact. In fact, if they don't actually receive the physical contact, they might not produce uh, ornithine decarboxylase, and their, their brains will actually not develop well enough. So they need physical contact for security and therefore uh, physiological, psychological development. But aside from this, uh, kids begin to be verbal at a very early age, and they're going to need to know that something is dangerous or not. Uh, part of the function of language at all is to render things threatening uh, or benign, right? Naming is knowing something. It's rendering it something that one can predict and understand. Uh, even if it's something that is dangerous, it, one knows where it is, one may be able to avoid it. So children from a very early age need various nonverbal and verbal cues to understand what is threatening, what may kill them, what they can rely upon. And they will begin to ask for narratives from a very early age as well. I mean, this is what, to some degree, this is what folklore, folklore is about. This is what children's stories and mythology is about. These may represent a whole gamut of different kinds of fantasies, including, by the way, satisfaction of various kinds of gruesome, violent fantasies that can be fairly disguised, but also from a very early... Nintendo games. Well, yeah. that even, um, that's even a little yeah. later. But even, so much disguised. Yeah. Uh, but even from this, uh, from this early age, there is a, a certain point where narratives are told in which Jack overcomes uh, the giant, which is a fairly naked kind of fantasy in terms of one's anxieties of being killed by some giant, right? being eaten by witches. These are fairly naked kinds of uh, childhood conflicts regarding the family and so forth. And so the child is trying to ameliorate these story, uh, the, these anxieties with stories which can satisfy the child that he's not helpless, he's not going to be eaten, he's not going to be cannibalized or killed and so forth. So the child goes through life very, very early seeking uh, meaning, seeking a narrative that explains things, whether it's a literal explanation, please tell me that this is not a threat, please tell me I'll go to heaven or something to this effect, or please tell me that the dog isn't going to bite my... my yeah, yeah. Scooby's off. So uh, I don't want to get so specific. <laughs> Can we bleep that? Yes. We'll we'll that we can't later. say Scooby's. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so of course, from a very early age, the child is going to need various kinds of explanations and stories. And now the debate, of course, is at what age is the child already repressing or denying in some sense what the child may even know on some level. So it's not only a question of whether children can fear death at an early age. As I said, there's such a thing as a pre-categorical or pre-verbal fear of death or annihilation, even if it's not understood conceptually. But in addition to this, there is also a certain stage where defenses, psychological structures start to develop in order to enable the kid to deal with the anxiety, and not necessarily through narratives, but through various means of emotionally numbing oneself or or defending oneself against anxiety in in regard to uh, Norman Brown's Oedipal Project. Again, the narcissistic inflation, the way of fantasizing oneself, heroizing oneself, is the child's and developing individual's way of avoiding the uh, terror of death. Okay, let's say our audience understands this. They've taken this in. What do they do? Why is this important to them? What should they know? I mean, our unconscious, we're we're communicating through our unconscious mind. We're communicating through gestures. And by not saying something... 
what should we know as a parent? Well, I would encourage parents to realize kids are not stupid, that they, just because they're young and they maybe are not as complex as adults, that they still can pick up on things. They can be very observant. They can be extremely intelligent. They may be able to perceive on many levels the kinds of issues that parents have. And the parents ought to really know themselves. They ought to really invest themselves in trying to understand just how their own behavior, even if they think it is benign and must be acted out, they must understand, they must inquire as to see what effect this really has on a child. I mean, I have I have seen uh, many parents beating their kids and defending this as though it were good for the kids. When I taught at a little college in, in Midtown, nobody, and I mean nobody, thought that beating children was bad. Every single student in every psychology class I taught thought that you had to beat children, and I mean beat them regularly, or else they would become criminals. So there's this kind of fantasy that they'll be monsters unless you beat the crap out of them, right? German Do parents... Uh, beat that one too? Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> German, Nobody really uh, thinks that anymore, do they? Um, I thought the culture would pretty much settle on the fact that you don't well, there are you many, raise your children without hitting them. We're, we're a multicultural nation, and and it's not just cultures. It's individuals who work out their own issues on their children, whether that means surviving through them, uh, living through them uh, vicariously, or inflicting on their own children what had been inflicted on them, and which happens uh, tremendously. So one might say, a repetition compulsion to work out issues on children. And it's very difficult for parents to understand or to perceive that they're doing this to their own children, right? We talked a little bit about this at one time. What I see where I live is that kids are a report card. They're like your justification. They're the reflection of you. If they get into Princeton or, or Yale, then your your job is over. Boy, you did a good job. Yeah, you're... You're a terrific parent. Right. The consequence of this, of course, is that the child internalizes the idea that if the child does not succeed, then the child won't be loved. The child will be hated. The child must therefore devote itself to pleasing other people in order to survive psychologically, which is deemed to be a, a wonderful thing uh, because the child is now successful in going to an Ivy League school, but of course will suffer uh, psychological consequences that the parents will disavow. It's not their fault because they, of course, had such a wonderful influence on these children. And to give you an extreme example, I was going to mention before, is that in the 19th century, uh, and even part of the 20th century, German parents uh, often beat the hell out of their kids and smacked them around really hard and said, this is for your own sake, and God loves you, and you know God loves you because you're being beaten. And that this was, uh, again, deemed to be a good thing, uh, a necessary thing, and that this would raise uh, wonderfully healthy children who would, of course, become moral representatives of the society. And we have some idea of what kind of moral representatives these children became in the 20th century. And yet there is the fantasy that this is necessary and that this is what produces a healthy child. So why is it so hard growing up in America these days? This is part of it, right? What is it about the American culture that we're like youth-focused, dominated, and yet we have teen pregnancy, we have teen suicide? It just seems so hard to grow up. We tend to have certain conditions now which are troubling in their own right. We tend to have a Gesellschaft kind of society or one that's less likely to be one of community, of, of communal values. But I'm not trying to take the George Bush-like approach to this to say that we need to teach our kids values. Well, part of the values themselves may be representative of certain kinds of real psychological problems. We tend to have, again, as, as, as we've discussed, uh, there are tremendous economic disparities. The parents themselves may be suffering from uh, issues that aren't so apparent. Uh, they may be suffering from their own self-esteem issues, investments, again, in their own children's success that have consequences that are unanticipated because the parents don't see 
that these will have uh, unfortunate side effects? The question is an extremely complicated one. And right. one we're not going to get to answer too much more than that, unfortunately, for this show. We're, oh, again, once I was again, just getting started. Oh, I know. <laughs> once, once again, it's been a fascinating discussion. Will you come back and talk with us again another time? Oh, absolutely. That's great. <laughs> Our guest has been Dr. Jerry Piven. Jerry, thank you for a terrific conversation. My pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Jerry Piven talking about child development, fears, narcissism, and child rearing. So, Ken, what's your takeaway? Well, Steve, Jerry starts off talking about the trauma of birth, uh, which reminded me of Otto Ronk's book, uh, The Myth of the Birth of the Hero. In the original German or the English translation? <laughs> English, mein Herr. Ronk says that we're all heroes in the act of our birth, and I'm ad-libbing from, from Joseph Campbell's uh, series with Bill Moyers, which I never get tired of. He says that in, in our birth, we're undergoing a tremendous transformation from being living first in a little water environment in, in our mother, then to being dragged out historically by a, uh, by a doctor and pulled into this cold air environment and filled with fluorescent lights and so forth and whacked and we take our first breath and cry. And I mean, that's a huge transformation just in itself, is it not? And it's a huge thing for the mother to bring it about. So before we get too far into this, I want to pull one line from the middle of Jerry's talk. Okay. And he says, this is all part of what it means to be human. Right. And I take that to mean that being human people, we all share common experiences and difficulties that are no one's fault. They're just part and parcel of being human. Ernest Becker sums it up when he says, this is how this animal must behave if it is to function as this animal. Many people who have no taste for self-reflection will tend to deny that any of this applies to them. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So Jerry talks about the child wanting to be a master of their own fate, to be independent, what he called individuation issues. Ernest Becker writes about the causa sui, or sui project, meaning to be the cause of oneself, to be one's own parent. That's our goal growing up, to be our own, to be the, the cause of oneself. That's a very good way to put that. Jerry also mentions Norman O. Brown's concept of the Oedipal project, not in the Freudian sense, but in the way of the helpless child trying to be, as you just said, the master of his own fate. The child will fantasize that he has control over things in a process that Jerry termed narcissistic inflation. He will, in effect, lie to himself about the situation that he finds himself in because that situation is simply too frustrating and awful for him to deal with in any other way. Right. And at the same time, children deal with annihilation anxiety. Right. Jerry interprets death via Becker pointing out that human children are born prematurely. We're not fully developed, and we're in an extremely vulnerable state. And we sense this very early, and we're terrified of annihilation long before we have the abstract concept of death to tie to it. That reminded me of Mr. Rogers once again. Ah, uh, Mr. Rogers. I love Mr. Rogers. I go back to him when we talk about children. James Ponawazic wrote that Fred Rogers 
calmed fears that may seem silly to a lot of people, but to a child, they're real and consuming, like being afraid to take a bath because you might be sucked down the drain. And Mr. Rogers sang this song, You Can Never Go Down, Never Go Down, Never Go, You Can Never Go Down the Drain. I don't know the tune, I don't remember, but, Good but thing. I remember him, I, I remember him singing that and thinking, wow, that's, that's heavy. So Fred Rogers knew that childhood, which we all misremember as carefree and innocent, Rogers remembers it's a time of roiling passions, anguish, and terror. Well, that's right. And the fact that he remembers something like being afraid of going down the drain is just, I think, a wonderful thing to do for children. And I wonder who's doing that for children now. Well, not only that, but we're just now, we, our society, is just now getting a handle on what child development really is. Well, that's Some true, of too, us, without even talking many, about the technology, just the childhood development. Just the childhood it, development. Itself, that we yeah. Had all, yeah, we had all these assumptions about when children know certain things. And I had a conversation with my young son on a bus ride once. He couldn't have been much older than like three or four. He asked me, what happens when you die? I said, no one knows, figuring that would be it. And then he asked if he could still hear the children playing when he was dead. Wow. I didn't know what to say. I replied that he probably couldn't, but I was very uncomfortable not being prepared for this discussion with a little kid. He said he hoped he could hear the children playing when he was dead. It was one of the saddest conversations I've ever had. Because as a parent, you want to fix it. You want to reassure the child that, oh, he won't die, he'll be in heaven and can hear the children playing. But I couldn't bring myself to do that. I, but I sat there, I had nothing to offer him. And what was interesting to me was he wasn't terrified of death the way the terror management theorists talk about it, the way Becker talks about it, he was saddened by it. Death awareness is not only frightening, it's excruciatingly sad. Yes, it is. And when you put it in the context of a story like that, it gets even sadder. But, Steve, you didn't, you didn't lie to your son. No. And it seemed that you, you did the best job of suffering along with him and letting him see you suffer along with him. I've heard that's one of the best things that a parent can do when they don't know what else to do, is to let the child see that you don't know what else to do and work through it in front of them rather than try to pretend, because they're going to know if you try to pretend. Kids know way more than you wish they did. Right. No, that's right. So you, I think, I think you hit the limits of what a parent can realistically do. I mean, no one can fix death. No, you can't. Much as you'd like to, you can't. So, getting back to Jerry, there are three issues at play here. Separation from the parent, individuation coming into yourself, and the fear of absorption or merger with the parent. And Jerry mentioned at this point that there are some parents who will still threaten their children 
or hit them or inculcate prohibitions and on the child, and in so doing, they're subjecting the child to their own unexamined, unconscious processes. And when he said that, I remembered a book by Alice Miller that I read years ago called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And by gifted, she means intelligent and alert. And by drama, she means the internal process that goes on when the child realizes the power game that's going on in the family and can see through the parents long before they would ever think that the child could see through them. I mean, children know when you're lying to them. They do. They can tell. They've been watching you since they were born. So Miller talks about this. It's a controversial book, but it is about narcissistic wounds and how we get through life bearing up under the narcissism that that can create for us. So I was just thinking about that book. Maybe we'll come back to it another time. I'd like to read it. It sounds really interesting. But first, I have to read Mary Trump's book about her famous uncle, the most dangerous man in America, as she calls him. Wow. Talk about narcissism and childhood. She remembers Donald as a child growing up in a family that was headed by a sociopath. Okay. I'm guessing for writing that book, she's not getting a very good Christmas present this year. <laughs> no, but she's making a ton of money. That'll probably make it easier. <laughs> I, I guess so. Jerry said that the child tries to overcome vulnerability by controlling their environment. So think about it. Control starts early and continues throughout one's life. We try to control other people in our family, in marriage, in employment. Yep. Our society. Yeah. Our society tries to control other countries. Our police try to control lawful protesters. We spend our lives trying to control the uncontrollable, which inevitably is death. Well, that's right. And as Jerry pointed out, which I thought was extremely sentient and relevant to the world we find ourselves in now, this often stems from our early state of vulnerability in childhood and our attempts to control the situation by controlling our parents and, by extension, controlling the world around them. Yeah, and getting back to the notion that developing children will fantasize or hallucinate a sense of narcissistic inflation, uh, that Norman O. Brown term, kids learn to lie to themselves about how important they are in the universe. That's right. And there is an epidemic of narcissism in our country, and it's growing among young people, unfortunately. Unfortunately. That is perhaps why we elected a narcissist-in-chief. Our culture glorifies and rewards the self-important, self-promoting, and self-aggrandizing entertainer, athlete, artist, politician, you name it. Yep. And what is deemed success is most often the result of relentless self-promotion, like Madonna. She was good at it. It's a she was she's the best. Yeah. It's a toxic relationship between what is needed in our culture for self-esteem, which of course is a vital defense against death anxiety, and what we have to become to get it, a self-centered narcissist. 
Yeah. And the younger generation is being pulled in opposite directions. Narcissism on the one hand, and concern for the common good on the other. So you look at Black Lives Matter, Me Too, Sunrise, Occupy, Never Again, or March for Our Lives. All are activist movements that involve primarily young people who want to change the world for the better, which is the world they will inherit soon. But it means they have to turn away from the narcissism that they're being shown as desirable on every award shows, in social media, entertainment, all the rap songs that they've been listening to. They're just drowning in narcissism. That's true. Jerry also mentioned Gesellschaft society, one that is less likely to hold communal values. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. You didn't get to develop it much, but when you think about it, the impersonality of much of our urban and suburban dominated society, the detachment from traditional and sentimental concerns, this society that is rationalistic, secular in outlook, is it's producing a narcissistic generation that's simultaneously torn to embrace communal values as well as racial and social justice in the woke movement. And possibly some interest in acquiring power thereby. Power that their generation will inevitably have. Well, the demographics are certainly on their side. You can't deny that one. So, we've been talking about child development. Yet another important idea. Wouldn't you know it. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com, the hub important ideas. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to the hub for important ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.